Daniel chapter 6. Now, if, you just, if you're just joining us, we, we basically have a little bit of context. Um, last week, we were in chapter 5, and we saw the end of the Babylonian Empire, which took place about 539 B.C., when Darius the Mede took over as the ruler of Babylon. And if you remember back in chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon of kingdom, had a dream of an image of a man of some kind made of various kinds of metal. And we know that in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel interprets this dream. Uh, he was a teenager at the time. And the interpretation of the dream basically is what, that each of these types of metal were successive kingdoms. And so it started with a head of gold and had arms of silver and, uh, you know, chest of silver and then uh, midsection of, of bronze and then legs of iron and then feet mixed with iron and clay. And basically each of these are kingdoms that would eventually culminate in the return of Christ and he would establish his eternal kingdom. That's what that picture is. Uh, in, but the interpretation was that Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold, and that was what Nebuchadnezzar wanted to know. He was the head of gold. He was the head honcho. He was most important. But that kingdom would eventually come into a different kingdom. Uh, it would go away. And that's what Daniel told King Nebuchadnezzar, that his kingdom would eventually be taken over by another kingdom. And that's what Jeremiah had actually had prophesied uh, before the uh, Babylonians had taken over Israel that Babylon had, was serving a purpose in God's plan. And at the end of that time, Babylon would be basically taken over by another kingdom. And that's what we saw at the end of chapter 5, was that the Medo-Persians came in, and we know from history that basically they diverted the river in this giant impregnable city. Supposedly, they diverted the river. The water went down overnight a little bit. They snuck in the bottom. They came in the city, and they took them overnight. And that night, that king that was over Babylon at that time, a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar, he died, and then Darius was established as the king, not only of Babylon, but of Persia. And that's what we saw at the end of chapter 5. And that leads us to chapter 6, which takes place during the rule of Darius, who we'll talk about in a second, who I believe is also Cyrus, one and the same. Um, and so verses 1 through 3 of chapter 6 say that it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, and so that the king might suffer no loss. Yet again, we're introduced to another king. This guy's called Darius. He's the leader of the Medes and the Persians. There's some mystique regarding uh, Darius because secular history really doesn't have any record of a Darius at this time. Um, and this could be for a couple reasons. Um, the first could be that, that Cyrus and Darius... Cyrus is actually the name of Cyrus the Great. He's the one that everybody has a name for at this time. Um, it could be that their names are, are, are uh, basically Cyrus was the big guy and that he instilled Darius just over Babylon. That's one thought. There's a lot of others, but the other main one, just to kind of cut through it all, uh, is, to, um, is that basically that the names are one and the same, that Darius is actually just a, a title, kind of like Pharaoh is. And that's a popular uh, thought among biblical scholars. And it's the one I kind of hold to, kind of like the name Pharaoh. And so Darius, when, it, when, the, when the scriptures talk about Darius, it's talking about most likely um, this leader uh, who would be 
uh, actually Cyrus of the Medo-Persians. And so now that that's all cleared up, uh, Darius here in chapter 6, um, by the way, also just, just real quickly, just jump down to verse 28 just to kind of give you a little bit more confusion. Um, it says in verse 28, so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. How many of you have an NIV? A lot of you have an NIV. Now look at your little footnote where it says Darius there, and it's going to go down, and that footnote's going to say, or Darius, that is the reign of Cyrus. So it's difficult interpreting. Basically, in Aramaic, it could say that basically Darius is Cyrus. And so there's some confusion there. But I believe that Darius is Cyrus. So when you're reading that, just kind of put the two together. That's going to be important later when you get into the prophecies of Isaiah, which we'll get to later. But chapter 6 starts by telling us that Darius had set up 120 of these governors, satraps, over his, his kingdom. And this wouldn't just include Babylon. This would include his entire kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, huge kingdom. And so um, of those 120, uh, there were three, well, actually, there were three who were over them, who those 120 reported to. Apparently, Daniel became one of them. Daniel just can't get out of a leadership position, can he? I mean, he's like 90, almost pushing 90 here, and they're like, yeah, yeah, let's, let's use you. He's, I'm sure he's like, okay, this is great. And so just to let you know, chapter 6 takes place 70 years, about 70 years after chapter 1. Daniel was a teen in chapter 1, and now he's, in his, he's almost 90 in, in, in basically in chapter 6. And so a lifelong time of service in one position of leadership or another under all these kings, from the kings of Babylon now to the Medo-Persians. If you remember back in chapter 2, after interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Nebuchadnezzar says, if you're able to do this, I'm going to make you, I'm going to give you all these rewards and all this stuff and give you great position. And basically Daniel became, um, was promoted to ruler over the province of Babylon after that in chapter 2. And so he got, he was a teenager, maybe early 20s when he got promoted to ruler over the province of Babylon, and then all over, of, over all the wise guys of Babylon. So all the wise men of Babylon were under his leadership. And then we saw again almost 70 years later. You remember, it would have been just a short time before chapter 6 here, at the end of chapter 5. Uh, remember, um, basically the Babylonian king says, hey, I've got this writing on the wall. What does it say? They went to all the wise men. They didn't know what it was. And then the, the king's mother basically says, there's this guy, Daniel, who does this stuff. He's real good. And they bring Daniel. He comes in, and Daniel interprets, and he goes, hey, listen, I'm going to make you third in command of all of the land and give you a chain and all this type of stuff. And Daniel's like, I, I don't want it. Keep it. Because basically what the writing on the wall said is, you're going to die tonight. So <laughs> I'd rather not be in leadership. Um, <laughs> makes sense. But basically, the point is that Daniel kept on being raised up by God at these critical moments and these critical times. God gifted him, and he empowered him to be able to be God's man in that spot. And now we see in verse 2 that Darius, a new king, a new kingdom, is, is, is here. And that king also recognizes Daniel's abilities and the spirit in which he does what he does. And he wants to, and he promotes Daniel to be one of the three highest um, rulers in the land, basically ruling over all the other governors. And verse 3 tells us that the ascent doesn't stop for Daniel, just that uh, uh, 
the three highest officials being one of them, but it tells us in verse 3, then this Daniel became distinguished above all those other officials and the satraps. The idea that Daniel was constantly ahead above everyone else. There was something about Daniel that was just, it caused kings to promote him. And it says there the reason why. This was because an excellent spirit was within him. The end of verse 3 tells us, the same excellent spirit that Nebuchadnezzar recognized in Daniel, the same excellent spirit that, his, that uh, Belshazzar's mother-in-law recognized, the same, it's the same excellent spirit that now Darius sees. And the idea of an excellent spirit here is not only that Daniel was gifted by God, amazingly, to govern and to administrate and to do all that God had called him to do, but it was the attitude in which he actually did it. The attitude and actually he went about it. We know the attributes of the Spirit. Isaiah chapter 1 and, and uh, basically, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 11, the first several verses there talk about the attributes of the Holy Spirit, of whom you can see these perfectly in Jesus, but also manifest in Daniel. Wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and fe- knowledge and the fear of the Lord and so on. So Daniel had this in in spades, he was, a, he was just very gifted in these practical gifts of understanding and counsel and might and wisdom and understanding and, and just leadership. And he just stood above everybody else. We read that in chapter 1, actually. But not only was Daniel gifted in, by, the, by the Lord, by the Spirit, he was gifted in that he manifested an excellent attitude in what he did. We know this. Uh, we know that the fruit of the Spirit was, according to Galatians 5.22, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And this is what Darius saw. This is what he saw in Daniel. Not only the gifting of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit. That's awesome. So not only was he an excellent at what he did, but he did it with an, an attitude that was awesome. And the attitude that, that jumped out wasn't just an earthly attitude. It was the fruit of the Spirit. It was Christ-likeness, basically. And he saw that gift, and it just... Daniel's life reflected God. And to a pagan, he didn't know what that was, but he knew that it was someone he wanted in a high position. An excellent in, excellence in gifting and an excellence in spirit. And so he had Daniel serve as one of the high officials. And because of that excellent spirit and because of that excellent gifting, verse 4 says that the king planned to set him over the what? The whole kingdom. So he keeps getting promoted. And wouldn't you just promote Daniel? Wouldn't you? I mean, just think about it in our day and age. Do you think employers are looking to promote? uh, who, Who do you think? employers are looking to promote in critical positions, in strategic positions, slackers with bad attitudes. That's weird. I mean, if that's your, uh, it seems to be what everybody's expecting. What about competent, faithful people who have decades of experience who have a great attitude? Yeah. Those are the guys you put in strategic positions. Those are the gals you put in strategic positions. 
that can shape nations, hopefully, if you're a wise king. And so Darius observes Daniel and desires to promote him over the whole kingdom. This would mean that Daniel is, not, is like, he's not just the third, one of these three high rulers. He would be right under the king in power. He keeps getting promoted to these positions that are right next to the king. This means close proximity to the king. He would be like the prime minister of the Medo-Persian Empire. That's what Darius had in mind with Daniel. That's what Nebuchadnezzar had in mind with Daniel. Same thing. And by the way, I have to note that Daniel's gifting and his attitude and his promotion and all these things were all purposeful on God's part, on his plan in Daniel's life. Because if you pull back and you look at the big picture, Israel has been in exile for 70 years. And through this whole time, God has had his man in the ear of the king, strategically placed. And we are at the end of the 70 years, and according to Daniel, uh, Jeremiah 25, Daniel knows that it's any time now that Israel is going to go back into the land and that Babylon will, will be judged. They just were judged, but he knows. And by the way, actually, by the time we're reading chapter 6, Cyrus has already had the decree to send Israel back. Daniel's already been in the ear of the king, as well as these other guys you read about in the Minor Prophets. So God has him strategically placed there. God desired to have his man in a key position for all of us. And we know that, which is interesting, from Isaiah 44, written 300 years before Cyrus or Darius's rule, that Cyrus, whose name is spelled out in Isaiah 300 years before Cyrus comes along. Cyrus reads Isaiah and sees his own name and sees his purpose of what God has for him, basically. We read about that in Ezra 1.1. And then he goes ahead and makes a decree to send the Jews back to Israel. But who do you think is behind the scenes the whole time in a leadership position, influencing and encouraging and all that stuff? Although it's not spoken, it's there. It's the quiet silent, humble servant of God, Daniel, behind the scenes. The point is that Daniel was God's man. He was God's prophet. He was right there just being faithful, ready for God to call upon him and use him when he desired. And God promoted him. God promoted Daniel with a purpose for to fulfill God's plan. God promoted Daniel to fulfill God's plan. And we know that when God is at work, guess who else is at work? The enemy. You ever had a victory in the Lord just to be met by the enemy right after that? He's right there. And so is the enemy, right? He's at work. God promotes Daniel. Well, the enemy was there to demote Daniel. That's exactly what, what happened. Daniel went from a promotion to persecution. And that's what we're seeing. Promotion to persecution, verse 4. Then the high official and the satraps, uh, officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they couldn't find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found with him. And then these men said, well, why shall we find, uh, we shall not find any complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. And so 
When the other two high officials heard of the king's promotion to this other guy, they became envious. Envy is, is horrible. It's not just being jealous of someone. It's actually wanting to take what they have. And boy, if our nation isn't envious, full of envy, envious people, I don't know what it is. James, James says in chapter 3, 13 through 15, speaking to the church, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy or envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false uh, to the truth. He says, this is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Envy is demonic. To have envy in your heart, to see what someone else, someone else has, and to desire, desire not only to want it, but to take it. That is something that is evil and demonic and earthly and unspiritual. And that's the joy about the body of Christ, is that as we look at one another, when one is promoted, we're all blessed. Right? When one hurts, we all hurt. When one's blessed, we're all blessed. And so we're all one in, in, in respect, and that's the way we're to look at things. We're to desire the best for others. We're to pour out, even if we are promoted, our positions are to be uh, positions of power, not for self-service, but to lay our lives down and to empower others to bless them and to lift them up. That is why God raises us up. That's what Jesus did. He went down so that others might live. The other is demonic. You're taking others down so that you might live. That's satanic. That's what Satan did. I will ascend. That's what he wanted from God. I will rule. I will be worshipped. And that's what makes the world go round these days, isn't it? In so many respects. And it was because of their envy they sought to persecute Daniel. They wanted Daniel to die. They wanted to take his position from him. And that's what they sought after. And so they began their persecution by stirring sentiments about, among the people around them who were influential, uh, the satraps. So they went to those 120 and they started stirring up the sentiments. You could see they got some of them to follow along with them. And then they moved from, uh, from, from stirring it up to go find out if they could find any weakness in what Daniel did, in any of his abilities, in his job. But they couldn't find it, could they? They couldn't find anything, any weakness in Daniel's abilities. His abilities and his attitude were impeccable. And so after they realized they couldn't get him in his work, Guess what they went for? His worship. There has to be a something in connection with the law of his God that is going to be his weakness. And what they were really doing is they knew Daniel was such a man of integrity that just as uncompromising as he was in, in his work, he would be in his worship. And they would use that to try to attack him. That hopefully he'd be faithful enough to the worship of his God, that they could find a way to make that conflict with the law of the land. And that's exactly when they, what they went after. And so the persecution shift for, from Daniel's work to his worship, verse 6 says, Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king Darius, uh, Darius, live forever. 
And all the king officials, all, all the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, and the governors all agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into a den of lions. You know when all the politicians agree that that's probably not good. Now, what the dictator now, if, if, if you're a dictator, I mean, like, and they come to you and say, hey, we want to have 30 days of just, like, praying to you. How about that? What do you think a dictator's going to do? That's a great idea. Let's, let's do that right now. You know, all this cabinet, all the lawyers, all the politicians, all the governors, and all this stuff, they came to him and said, hey, that's what we want to do. And by the way, let's put a little tag on the end. If, if, if anybody violates that, we're going to throw them in the den of lions. That's what's going to happen. And it wasn't because they wanted to pray to the king. They were praying on the king's weakness, which was his pride. That's what was going on, just as they're going to pray on Daniel's strength. So knowing that the king would fall prey to his own pride, they pitched this idea, expecting that it would become law, and Daniel would violate it because Daniel was devoted in his worship. Daniel was devoted in his work. And he was devoted to God in his worship. And so they pitched it to the king, who was deceived by their flattery. Verse 8, now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed it, the document and the injunction. And so they appealed to the king's pride, and they said, listen, you got to sign this thing. And what happens in our Medo-Persian law, they had a lot of interesting laws, is basically once it was signed, it was irrevocable, not even by the king. So you couldn't have fly-by-night laws. It was binding. And so the trap is set, verse 10. And when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber towards, open towards Jerusalem. And he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks to God before his God, right? Gave thanks before his God and he, as he had done previously. Now, verse 10 is important for us to understand. It shows that basically they went around Daniel's back, first of all. Daniel didn't know this. He's pretty high up on the ranks, right? And they went all, everybody got together except for Daniel. And they all said, hey, King, we've got this great idea. I don't know why the king didn't consult Daniel on this, but obviously there must have been some lies and deception there. So they went around his back, but more importantly, it shows us that when Daniel found out about the law, he willingly violated this new law that was binding, that prohibited Daniel from praying to God. He went ahead and prayed to God anyways. So we, we have is Daniel disobeying the law of the land. And let me say as you're looking at this, this is, this is not Daniel being defiant to the law of the land. This is Daniel being devoted to God. That's a very important distinction to make. This is not telling the king to take a hike. Rather, Daniel is being devoted to God. This wasn't in defiance. It was devotion. Daniel was faithful to submit to all the kings he served. Pretty great kings, wouldn't you agree? King Nebuchadnezzar builds a 90-foot statue, tells everybody to bow down and worship him, just kills people at will. And my guess is the others weren't any better. 
Daniel had a real difficult job in serving under that kind of a king, and yet he did. And he did everything they asked him to, except for when it violated the law of God. And that's where Daniel drew the line. And he did it when he was a kid. You remember when he was a teenager, actually? That was, that was the same principle that started when he was a kid, where he wouldn't eat of the king's delicacies. And the reason for that is it's implied that those things were sacrificed to idols. He wouldn't eat of the king's meat and drink of the king's wine. He had purposed in his heart to be holy and devoted to God. That's the same principle that's going on here 70 years later in this man's life. When he was told that he would not worship God, but was told to worship another, it's the same principle. He wasn't going to do it. He was going to be obedient to God. He was devoted to God. He was a man of God. And so when this new law was passed, it wasn't as if Daniel suddenly became a man of prayer to defy the king. Was it? He wasn't praying out of spite. He was praying out of devotion to the Lord. It says that when that decree came, Daniel simply continued to do what he had always done. He worshipped God. He opened the window towards Jerusalem, which is where the Holy of Holies was, and he prayed three times a day, as he had done previously. Amen? Daniel was already devoted to God, and the laws of man didn't change that. You know, I, I, you can't help but see the parallel here, here with what's going on in our society, right? It's interesting. In our current circumstances that we have here in the state of Washington, we have a lot of guidance given by the governor in every facet of our society, don't we? Every facet of our society. Many of these orders we'd rather do without, right? And the, everybody said Amen. The whole of earth doesn't want to do these things. I mean, no one wants to, right? But we submit and we do our best for a lot of reasons. For a lot of reasons. But then beyond that, the governor has specific guidance for houses of worship. Specific guidance for churches. Which is not guidance at all. They call it guidance. It, they, make no mistake, they are ordinances. They're, they're commands from him. So these are commands, not suggestions. That's exactly what's going on there. And let me tell you that the governor, nor the science, is not concerned about what God says about how people are to worship him. You would expect as much from unbelievers. Governors are there for other reasons. They're not sitting there oh, cracking open the Bible going, oh, this is what, this is what it says. Okay, let's, let's work with that. They aren't. They aren't concerned with that. And so many of these orders are actually in, in direct conflict with how the church is to be conducted. They really, they really are. And brothers and sisters, it's been very difficult navigating through all this with the elders as we're prayerfully trying to figure out all this stuff. First of all, because we do in fact live in the United States of America, where the church has special protection under the Constitution. You can tell Walmart how to do stuff, but when it comes to religious institutions, 
There's a special protection under the Constitution for houses of worship. You have to have the least strenuous things upon a church, upon an institution on how they worship. Not equal across the board, the least. There's special protection. That's the way our Constitution is set up. And I think the governor has shown little restraint when it comes to those things. But, you know, what do you expect? And so there, there's the constitutionality of it all. Put that aside. Put that aside. The second thing that's more important is what does God say about the church? What does God say about how we're to conduct ourselves? What does the New Testament teach about the church and how we're to gather and how we're to worship and how we're to interact with one another? Right? You know, that, that seems to have been pushed aside a lot lately. There have been so, there's been so much pressure put on churches demanding, you know, that we modify our worship of God to comply with the state of Washington. And I wonder what it would look like if churches actually looked at the, the Word of God like they do the compliance of the state of Washington. Like if they read the New Testament and read Timothy and read Titus and read all these things and said, oh, that's what God requires of us. This is how we're to act when we gather together. This is what we're to do. And to really be preoccupied with that. I wonder what it would look like. You know, the New Testament shows that we're to gather corporately like we are today. Flat out, we are to gather. And guess what? We're also to gather in our homes and with each other in other circumstances throughout the week. This is what the New Testament shows us. This is what the Lord Jesus commands us to do, to be in one another's lives in one way or the other. And when we do gather, we sing to him. We're to sing. We're to pray with all kinds of prayers. We are to worship God. We're to be in the word together. We are to break bread together. We're to have communion together, we're to eat together, we're to love one another deeply and from the heart. And that often defies social distancing. The scripture speaks about greeting one another with a holy kiss. Obviously, the sentiment is that there's to be affection towards one another. laying on of hands of one another, baptizing one another, loving one another, not looking at one another as a potential death threat, but as an opportunity for mutual edification. And yes, if you're sick, stay home. Do I need to go through the legal disclaimer? We wash our hands. We also love each other by not infecting one another and all those things, right? But not at the expense of what God clearly calls the church to be and to do. Does that make sense? 
The point is, is that the church, as believers, there is so much of what is being commanded of us that, like Daniel, we just have to ignore. Not out of defiance, church, but out of devotion. And I think we need to exercise wisdom and all that and caution and prudence and you don't just go start giving someone a holy kiss when they want you to stay six feet away. Amen? But we got to put Jesus as Lord at the top. Jesus is Lord of the church. He tells us what we're to do as we gather together. He is our Lord. You may have no choir makes me want to start to have a choir. But we haven't had a choir. We don't do a choir. That would be defiance. You see what I'm saying? You may have two people singing or two people, two musical performances. You may have one person, they have to wear a mask while they're singing, and unless you're a flautist, you have to wear a mask. You must stay six feet away. This is how you're to conduct your worship. No. We're going to worship God the way we always have been. Have we modified our teams? Have we spread out? Have we tried to do these things? Of course. Because we're not trying to be rebellious. We're trying to honor the king, but honor the Lord. And so my son and my daughter are next together. Next to, it, next to each other. And Micah's out here in the Netherlands. Right? You'll see that what we're trying to meet outside, we're trying to meet in here, we're trying to spread the, seat feet, the seats six feet this way, but you can figure out six feet that way. You see, I'm just... We're doing the best we can to submit to the king, but ultimately we need to be preoccupied with what the Lord says. And when they say, you will not gather, you will not sing, you will not do this, we just simply have to say, we're going to do what we've always done. We're going to worship the Lord, and we're going to be smart about it, and we're not going to be rebellious. Amen? He is our Lord, and we're submitted to Him. And He has the rightful place of how we are to do what we are to do and when we're to do it. And Daniel was devoted to the Lord. Not being defiant, but he was devoted to the Lord. And he did this because he prayed three times to Jerusalem after he heard about what was going on. And this wasn't something that he just started. A lot of people are doing rebel church right now. No. A lot of people are just starting to go to church because they're going to stick it to the man. That is, that's a recipe for disaster. Because when you come to the Lord, he puts your heart right in submission to all things. He doesn't teach you to be rebellious. He teaches you to be submitted. Children, obey your parents. Husbands, uh, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Slaves, obey your masters. Husbands, submit to the Father. You know, just submit to one another out of reverence, all these things. Submit to your government, all this kind of stuff. This is, that's New Testament teaching, putting us in right relationship according to the authority of God all the way from all the way the way God designed it. But Daniel was sitting here 
And he just had previously, he'd always been a man of prayer since he was a kid, is my guess, and he just continued to pray to God. And we'll continue to worship God. And of course, we'll be smart about it. We'll do the best we can. But we're going to continue to worship God, not out of rebellion, but out of devotion to the Lord. And we know this. And you've got to know this, church, that when you decide to be devoted to the Lord, when you continue to follow after the Lord, there's going to be persecution. There's going to be resistance. That's what happens. Expect persecution. Verse 11, then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making a petition and plea for his God. They can't, why would you hang out at Daniel's house? Because they wanted to find him doing what he had always done. He was devoted to his God. He was praying. And just expect it. Their motives weren't right. They were looking for the legal means to take him out. And so they had the king pass the law. They're just waiting for Daniel to break it. And he did. Verse 12, And they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, Did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days? (laughs) Sounds like guidance here. Except you, O king, shall be cast in the den of lions. The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Yep, done deal. Verse 13, And then they answered and said before the king Daniel, who is of one of the exiles from Judah pay, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Notice that. He pays no attention to you or what you wrote down, but he actually does the opposite. He prays three times a day. He super breaks it. Notice the prejudice they had towards Daniel. He's a foreigner, that exile from Judah. They had a prejudice. They didn't like people from other places. Notice the lies that Daniel pays no attention to you, O king. Are you kidding me? Daniel was the most attentive servant to the king that the king had, and that's why he loved him. Great attitude in everything he did. Notice the deception as well, making it seem that Daniel's devotion, praying three times a day, was actually in defiance of the king, that that was his heart motive. No, it wasn't. Daniel was just devoted to God, and that happened to be a bystander of that devotion. You're going to have conflict with the world when you're in, in alignment with God. The enemy is crafty in his persecution, and the king hears this. In verse 14, he tells us, Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. He admired Daniel. He actually really like Daniel, wanted to promote Daniel. He had known Daniel for a while now. And by now he realizes the power play that's going on. And he realizes that he let his pride get to the best of him and that he's the one at fault. And he's just, he's just going over it and over it in his mind. And so it says that he labored until the sun went down to rescue him. It's probably, you know, they probably caught him sometime in the morning and it's just all day. He's just going for it. He's like, what's What can I do? What kind of loophole can there be? Verse 15. And then these men came by agreement to the the king and said to the king, so the sun is down now. And by Persian law, the execution had to happen before sundown. That's the law of the Medes and the Persians, they said. And no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Oh, you got to get Daniel. 
So Daniel's enemies were so quick to go to the letter of the law to condemn Daniel. And the king's hands were tied, verse 16. And then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. Have you ever seen a lion, a real lion? How many of you have seen a real lion? Yeah, I grew up in San Diego, so you had the San Diego Zoo and the Wild Animal Park. And occasionally we'd go there, and I remember, I can't remember if it was the last time we all went as a family, like we were looking at the lion exhibit. It was probably tigers or lions, oh my. I can't remember which one it was, but the tiger. And there was a little kid up against the, against the screen, and this lion was awake. If you, if you have a cat, you understand bigger cats. Um, they're like 99% knocked out and then 1% like crazy on fire. And that's kind of how they work. And this lion was awake and he came up to the, the thing and this little kid was just go like, ah, he was like four years old. And the lion just boom, just pounces the window. And it kind of, we all were like, oh my gosh, if it wasn't for that glass. There was no one, all 20 of us in there that could have, that could have done anything about that. Those things are powerful creatures. And these animals were starved for execution. Their sole purpose was being put in a pit, which is most likely some kind of cave in the side of a, of a hill with a hole on the top and some axis thing on the side, but they were starved for the purpose of execution. That's what they did. So ferocious animals. And the king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve, verse 16, continue to deliver you. And a stone was brought out and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords and that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. And so the king knew Daniel fairly well. And he says to him, man, I, I wish you the best. May God help you out. I'm really sorry about this. And he sticks his signet probably on some wax or whatever it was. And don't mess with it because it's by decree of the king. Verse 18, well, actually, yeah, verse 18, it says, uh, Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought up to him, and, and uh, sleep fled from him. So he didn't have any music or guests or food or anything. He just was awake all night worrying about Daniel, obviously weighing heavy on his conscience. What had he done? Verse 19, and then at daybreak, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, be able to deliver you from the lions? And then Daniel, verse 21, said, O king, live forever. <laughs> You're in a pit, still got to get the pleasantries out of the way, right? And uh, my God sent his angel and shut the, the lion's mouths. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Daniel's not being prideful here. I think it was revealed to him by the angel, whatever it was, why he was delivered. And he was just simply relaying the message that Daniel was found what? Blameless before God, and he did no harm to the what? To the king. Let that be a lesson to us. To walk blameless before God and show no harm to the king. And then the king was exceedingly glad 
and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. And so Daniel was taken up out of the den and, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. This is a little vignette of the gospel. It's more developed in Hebrews. It's kind of a context there. But, but the picture is that God is able to thoroughly deliver those who trust in him. And those who trust in him walk blameless before God because of Christ. And they walk in, in harmony with men as best as possible. Now, we might be martyred in this life. Just as Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego had said, God is able to deliver us, but if he doesn't, I'm not going to bow down and worship your, your idol. But before God on judgment day, those who trust in Christ will be delivered totally and completely by God's grace from eternal separation from God. And God is just, just as he is merciful and just as he is love. He is fully just. And through Christ, we are completely delivered from the wrath of God, totally unscathed and unharmed because he took the full force of the punishment upon himself. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Just like Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, they trusted God to deliver them, and their, their deliverance was complete. They didn't smell like smoke. No fire, nothing was wrong with them. And here Daniel was without a scratch. Without a scratch. No harm to God, no walked blamelessly before God, no harm to the king, trusting in God. Same with us through faith in Christ. We're completely delivered from hell, and we now walk in obedience to God. But as for the other guys, verse 24, and the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Serious stuff. How many of you are like, what's up with the kids? Persians were no joke. There's a rule or an ordinance for the Persians that if, if one is found guilty, all your kindred are basically get, get the punishment. Kind of kept law and order. If you blew it, your whole family suffered. And isn't that true about sin? We think that if we sin, like everything's good. No, everybody suffers. They were shredded before they could hit the ground. The lions were hungry, but God delivered Daniel through faith. And let's just read these last few verses. And then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages uh, that dwell on the earth. This is basically just saying to everybody who's within his ear, within his rule. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Why? For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall never be uh, come to an end. 
Verse 27, he delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. And he who saved, he who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. And so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Doesn't say much about Daniel, does it? There's a lot about God. <laughs> Through this whole thing, who is, who is Darius extremely impressed with? God. That's why we exist, church, to bring him glory, to be vessels of his glory. So that the world would marvel at God. Your life exists for his glory. Your purposes are to be wrapped up in his plan. And as you walk in that plan, you will see the richest, fullest purpose and meaning that you could ever have. Doesn't mean it's not going to be, you're, you're, you're going to have a pain-free life. That's a lie. No. But you're going to live for the existence that you've been brought into this world to glorify God by loving and obeying Jesus Christ. Daniel is a great example that we should look to in the times we're living in. Humbly serving the king, but never without a mistake, he knew where the lordship of God was in his life. And he had those straight at all times. May we be the same, amen? And may God work through a holy people, not a defiant people, but a devoted people, amen? May we be people who are praying for our new president, not slandering, amen? Don't engage in it. It's sin. You know, like Satan or the devil, I can't remember. I always get these backwards. It means slanderer. Don't be a part of that. Don't talk evil. I know we want to because we're upset or, or you're not or, you know, against Trump or whatever it might be. It's just like, knock that off if you're a believer. Trust that God puts people where they should be. He takes up kings. He sets down kings and we humbly submit and we live peaceful. We pray for peaceful, quiet lives. We bless those who are around us. And we just walk in obedience to the Lord no matter what happens. No matter who's on the throne, we just follow the Lord. And we honor Him wherever we are. And you can just take a deep breath because guess who's on the throne? Relax. Some of you are, need to, like, who were, you know, voting one way or the other. Don't get all excited. God's on the throne. And it's all working together for his plan and his purposes because guess what's happening after the kingdom of gold, after the kingdom of silver, after the kingdom of bronze, after the kingdom of iron, and after the iron clay? Guess what's coming? A kingdom that isn't cut with human hands. It's going to come and it's going to hit and everything else is going to fall apart. And the only thing that will stand is Jesus and his kingdom. Everything will be shake, shook that can be shaken. What kingdom are you a part of? 
That shows now. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we love you. We do. We, we love you, and we're, we're thankful for your rule and the rock that you are in our hearts and whatever comes. And, and we want to live out that love in this lifetime, God. You've been so merciful to us, so gracious by giving us your son. So let us be people who bless and not curse, Lord. Let us be people who um, pray for and lift up and exhort and encourage um, those around us. And yes, speak the truth in darkness and, and stand for righteousness. That's just by nature of our relationship with you, we do that, Lord. But Father, may we be a humble church. Teach us to be humble, God. Forgive us for pride. And may we be unified, not in our divisiveness, but in our, in our devotion to you, Lord Jesus. May you, Father, just be glorified in this church as your love flows from us from one another and give us real wisdom about how we honor you and also uh, submit to the King. Continue to give us wisdom, Father. And where there's um, any root of defiance in us, Lord, please take it out. Help us, God, uh, once again to be focused on you. And we do pray for a blessing upon uh, President-elect Biden and Kamala Harris, Lord. We, we do pray for them. We ask for your hand of guidance upon them. Have mercy upon them um, on the, the, the state of the union, Lord, and all that they've inherited. Bless them, God. Bless their families. Keep them um, healthy. And God, give them good counsel. I pray you Papa Daniel in there, Lord. Um, I know you've got people in all kinds of places, Lord. And so we ask that you would put a Daniel in there and that you would give us mercy in this, in this day and age. And, and we just pray that through all of this, Lord, that we would remain faithful to you and that your word would go out. No matter how dark things get or difficult, we continue to be faithful to you, Lord, and that we would know uh, where we stand in all of this. We stand with you, and may your blessings flow from that, God, through this church to the people around us, and may your gospel just be like a shining light, God, as we are not one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom, but we would be all yours. So we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.